Well, go ahead and open in your Bible to the book of Ruth, if you would. And let me welcome everyone. We're delighted that you are here, whether you're listening or watching or sitting in our, in our fireside room. We took, some of you had a hard time finding, so that's great you did. We're going to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. I happen to teach out of the New, Inti or New International Version, NIV, but, uh, so if it sounds a little different than the one in your lap, that's not a problem. But we're going to start with the book of Ruth. I want you to imagine, to begin with, that you work for a company where the president found it necessary to travel out of the country, leave, leave for a while, going to be gone on an extended trip. Don't know how long, but he says he's going to leave, gathers the employees together, and he says, now I'm going to be gone. While I'm gone, I, I want you to pay close attention to this business. I want you to run it like I would. I want you to managing things that... I want you to manage things while I'm gone like, like they are now. And from time to time, I'm going to write you pretty regularly. And when I do, I want you to pay special attention to those, to those letters because there's going to be some instructions until I return from my trip. So everybody agrees and he leaves and he's gone several years. And during that time, true to his word, he writes home or writes back to the company very regularly. He indicates some desires, some concerns. Uh, he communicates from his heart. And finally, he returns. He comes back. He walks up to the building, and it's a mess. They haven't weeded in a long time. Clearly, the windows haven't been washed. Uh, the parking lot is full of dirt and, and stuff. He walks through the, the front door. Uh, the person at the counter is kind of half asleep. There's, uh, you know, broken things here or there. Uh, two or three people are messing around in, in the back room instead of paying attention. Loud music's blaring, but nobody's paying attention. And instead of making a profit, they're, they're uh, you know, suffering a great loss. Without hesitation, he grabs those people and gets them together and with a pretty serious face says, what happened? Didn't you get my letters? To which they said, oh yeah, sure. We got every one of them. In fact, we even bound them and they get this big book. We bound them in a book. And some of us, we've even memorized part of it. In fact, we have a letter study every Sunday. Those were really great letters. You're getting the point. <laughs> I think sometimes we approach serving the Lord just like they did. We, we, we honor the Bible by getting it out on Sundays and occasionally memorizing a phrase or a line. We occasionally read it on our own, but never with the intent of it's actually changing the way we do life. And it is my prayer and my hope as we jump into the book of Ruth that you're not the same person six or seven weeks from now as you go through this book with me. So we're in Ruth chapter one. We're going to only catch the first five or six verses. But before I read them, let me give you a little bit of background uh, to this book. It's a narrative. It's a story. Some have said it's one of the best short stories that's ever been written. It's clearly a classic piece of literature. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to show you that it really has like four acts and then some scenes within acts. It's a marvelous piece of literature, but it's much more than that. It's set in the time of the judges. So we have to stop a minute and have a little, a little history lesson for Israel. 
So, so when uh, the children of Israel came out of Egypt uh, under the tutelage of Moses and they come up and eventually get into the promised land, they don't have a king. There is no centralized government. And so as they move into the, to the promised land under Joshua at that point, they, they have sections that they're moving to. And in that section, so this is the, the tribe of Judah, and this is the tribe of Manasseh, and, and over here's Gad, and Asher's over here, and Naphtali's over there. Each one of them had a ruler, a regional ruler, that they called a judge. It wasn't a king, it was a judge. He was only responsible for that small area. So if there were adjudications that need to have happen, they would go to that guy, the judge. The problem is, is it wasn't a time of great spiritual revival. In fact, if you just kind of thumb through, starting in chapter 17 of Judges, the book just to the left of Ruth, you're going to see a statement that reoccurs over and over again, starting maybe in 17.6. In 17.6, it says... Uh, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And that gets repeated in 18 and 19 and 21. Everyone did what he wanted to do. No king, no centralized government, no, no spiritual leader over all the people. Everybody just did what he wanted to do. That's the setting or the time for the book of Ruth. Um, we're not sure who wrote the book of Ruth. Tradition, particularly Jewish tradition, says that Samuel wrote it. Whoever it was, he was a great storyteller. And, and Samuel writes a pretty good book uh, himself, so we assume that maybe it was Samuel. We don't know exactly when it was written, but we know it was written before uh, you know, the end of, of the king's period of time, because David is mentioned at the end of this book. So we're not sure about the prof who wrote it, for sure, likely Samuel. We're definitely not sure of the date when it was written. There are a lot of themes that are embedded in the book of Ruth, and if, if you're not paying attention for them, they'll go right over your head. The one theme that I wanted to mention especially is that, that uh, the Israelites are going to be encouraged to observe what the law said about marriage. Who you're supposed to marry, why you're supposed to marry them, who you're not supposed to marry. These are against the law. That's a theme. There's also another theme that shows up when we get into the kind of the second act or the second section of the book where we have someone that has unbelievable kindness. His name is Boaz. And, and he is going to exert or show uh, in a, a very special way a kindness to people that don't deserve it. That's a theme. Um, Dave, not David, excuse me, God's providence matched with the, the need for there to be uh, uh, some, some work on the part of, of the people is an underlying thought as well. Kindness and preserving the family that, that is going to ultimately produce David. Now you remember, the reason that's important is, is each one of the major uh, persons in the Old Testament, they got, a, they got a covenant, they got a promise from God. Here's what's going to happen, blah, 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 blah. And down through your line will come the Messiah. And, and that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. Well, what if the line th doesn't come the way it's supposed to? What if the right person isn't the right person at the right time in the right situation so that Jesus can come from that line? God super, supervised that, and that is a big theme in this book. And then just the importance of a variety 
of relationships. And that's why I called this lesson, this, this series, A Study of Relationships. All kinds of relationships. Husbands and wives, certainly, yes. Uh, dating relationships, <clears throat> excuse me, relationships to the poor. How are we supposed to deal with immigrants? You'd say immigrants. Yes, that's in Ruth. Um, how we're supposed to deal with each other. Um, uh, extended family relationships like in-laws and outlaws. Uh, all those relationships are in the book of Ruth. There's several theological things in this book too. The first one that probably doesn't come out because we're reading it in English is that God himself is mentioned about 23 times in this book, which means he was a big, a big character in their lives. It wasn't one of those time periods where people didn't know much about God. They knew a lot about God. And the name that is used for him is indicating what kind of a relationship they should have been having with him. So of those times, the 23 times, the vast majority, he's referred to as Yahweh. He's not referred to as Elohim. Elohim is just a, a, a technical name for God. Uh, uh, in, this, in this case, the book is filled with him being referred to as Yahweh. Yahweh is his personal covenant name. It's the name that he chooses to use when he's talking to his kids. So that's a theme that's going to run through this. That action of the providence of God and the, and, the, and the action of man, that's going to be a theological theme. The word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, a, a, a Hebrew word, it shows up all the way through this book. And, and, and it's Yahweh's term for steadfast love. When in the Old Testament, the writer wants to say, this is God's special love for God's special people, he uses the term hesed. Uh, I did a deep, 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 very good, Sherry, a deep dive this summer into the into the book of Psalms, and uh, I had done it the summer before. I'd used one of those books that have the printing of the of the text on the left and a blank page on the right. I forget what those are called. Journal books. That's it. And I had done it the year before, and I'd used a certain color pen. And so this past summer. I used a different color pen and I was looking for different things and wondering what, what would I draw out having just done the deep dive the summer before, what would it look like? It's fascinating. I'm going to do it again next summer. I can't wait to see what it'll be like. I got to get another color pen though. I've exhausted that. But I had, a, I had an orange pen for the word hesed. And every time I saw hesed in the, in the Psalms, I, or, excuse me, every time I saw the translation, steadfast love, I wrote over it hesed. And I'm fascinated with thousands of times that the psalmist, various psalmist writers, had in fact hesed as the, as the indicator of the kind of love. It's going to show up big time in our, in our study of Ruth. In chapter 1, verse number 8, Naomi, I'll tell you who she is in a moment, she's going to ask God to deal kindly with her daughters-in-law, to, to apply steadfast love. In, and in chapter 2, Naomi's going to ask Yahweh now to bless Boaz in the same way. And she's going to use that steadfast love term. When we get to chapter three, Boaz now is going to turn around and want to bless Ruth for her loyalty to Naomi. And he's going to use that uh, also that term steadfast love. So it's a theme, a biblical theme, a, a theological theme that's going to show up in the book of Ruth. We're also going to see very clearly that God is a source of blessing. And that blessing occurs as a consequence of being in a right relationship with God and others. Now, let me pause here a second. 
Modern day Christendom wants God to be good to everybody all the time, which is why we have kind of the, the Santa Claus look, you know? Uh, it's kind of kind of a joke. Have you been good or naughty or nice? He's got, he blesses everybody, doesn't he? Does he? Doesn't he? Is there a conditional? Well, how you answer that tells me a lot about how you know your Bible. Because yes, on the one hand, you could say, yes, he blesses people all the time. We call that the common good or, you know, the sun came up and, and gravity worked this morning. We didn't all float away. <laughs> so there's a common good, a common blessing. The air was the right, you know, we've got the carbon and the hydrogen and the oxygen in the right numbers. And we can take a nice big breath. All of us can do that, whether we're in a right, right relationship with God or not. We're all breathing the same stuff. In that sense, yes. God does good to all. But we don't like to think that God dispenses his blessings based on anything we do. We want to give ourselves an out. What do you mean it's on me? No, 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 no. It's on God. And when we finish this book, you're going to see it's on us. Not always, not in every set of circumstances, but there is conditional blessing. And what we're going to run into here in chapter one is they didn't do right and they didn't get the blessing. So one of the theological things you'll see in this book is that God is a source of blessing and that blessing occurs as a consequence of us being in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. You can't hate your husband or your children or the girl next door and expect God to bless just because you bow your head at dinner and pray and thank him for the food. There is some conditional things going on here and some consequences going on. We don't like to think about consequences. There are several also Old Testament laws that we'll get into in the book of Ruth. Um, the laws of having to do with gleaning, having to do with dealing with the poor. How do you deal with the poor? How do you deal with the guy at Costco with the sign? Ruth is going to give you an answer. What you should do next time you're at Costco and the guy's standing out there with the, the cardboard sign. The book of Ruth is going to give you the clue. There's going to be laws about uh, other things that we're going to look at. For example, the law of redemption, which is called the kinsman redeemer principle. One of my favorite theological principles in the Bible. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the law that had to do with excluding somebody from the, from the assembly. Again, we don't like to think about that. You mean kick somebody out of church? Yes. Is that in the book? Yes. We don't want to think about that. Why would we kick somebody out of Bible study? We're not. We're not. <laughs> but there is a sense of which there are some principles involved, and Ruth will bring them out. And then lastly, I mentioned already all the laws having to do with intermarriage. So my last comment about um, an introduction have, has to do more with a literary thing. There are four chapters in this book almost looking at it like a four-act play. So if you're into literature and you're into plays, you've got four, four acts. Acts one, two, three, four. And in each act, there are three scenes. Scene one, scene two, scene three. And we're going to capture just scene one today. Um, or excuse me, actually a couple of scenes, but not, a, not the whole act. Um, in chapter one, uh, there are these three, and I put them in your notes. There's the first scene where Elimelech he shows up with his family. They're coming from Bethlehem to Moab. And it's the end of the family line once they get to Moab. Scene two, Naomi, Orpha, and Ruth. Now they're going to travel from Moab back to Bethlehem. 
and there's going to be a lot of dialogue between the, the three ladies. The third scene is Naomi and Ruth, and they're going to stand at the town gate when they get back to Bethlehem, and Naomi's going to be doing some crying amongst the, the townspeople. I say all that simply to say there is rhythm to this book. It makes sense. Let's go and read it now. Let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Key word, famine. And a man from Bethlehem in Ju Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while, another key thought, in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now we're going to just, well, I'll pick up six. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So uh, if you've been in Bible study with me before, you know I love maps. And so I've got a colored map for you today. Yay. Yay it's exciting. <laughs> First day of Bible study. <laughs> I want you to look and, and find Jerusalem. That wouldn't be too hard. Uh, let's see what color it is. In the middle of the or peachy kind of thing, I think, or maybe it's blue. I, can't, I don't have a colored one there. Find Jerusalem? Okay. So these people live just outside of Jerusalem in the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not very far from the city of Jerusalem. They are in uh, God's country. They are in the, the, the 12 tribes area. They're where they're supposed to be. But there was a famine in the land, a terrible famine. Not, not where, you know, they're short on sugar and a little short on wheat. We're talking nobody's eating kind of famine. And at some point, they're going to decide to move from their, their home in Bethlehem and go across the River Jordan, over the top of the Red Sea, into the nation or the kingdom of Moab. Do you see Moab over there? Mm -hmm. What color is Moab? Purple? Purple, Purple is Moab. Mm -hmm. So they've gone about 50 miles in response to this famine. Elimelech looks at his two boys and says, you know what, this isn't working, we got to go. Now, a couple of things I don't want you to miss. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. The idea is God will provide. Everyone else that's one of God's kids that's living in the other 12 locations, they're getting along. God is providing. Elimelech is looking at his situation and decides to take matters into his own hands. We're in the midst of a famine. I've got two boys. They're probably about the age of 10, 12, somewhere around in there when he makes the decision that they're going to leave. They're going to travel those 50 miles, which would have taken them quite a while, and they move to Moab. Now, why, why Moab? Moab was kind of a plateau. And on that plateau, there was great harvests. It was a great place to grow things. It, it's a little dry today. If you lay in the Dead Sea and look over there, it looks really dry. But at that point, it was a place where there was a lot of things growing. And he's decided that we're going to go there. But he, but he makes a point in the letter. I want you to look at uh, verse 1. Together with his wife and his two sons, he went to live for a while. 
the text in Hebrew says they went, they went temporary. They were sojourning, to use a Bible word. He didn't intend to stay there. He intended to go just long enough, I don't know, till, till maybe the famine was gone. But he is moved to Moab. Now, Moab is not a good place for a good Jewish boy to go. I, I put a couple of things in your notes. By the way, I, I had a couple of typos in here, but na the, Moab is named after a incestuous, incestuous relationship that Lot, who is Abraham's uh, nephew, Lot had with his daughters in Genesis, and it's 19, by the way, Genesis 19, uh, not 37 to 38. So if you go and take a look at that story in your Bible, you'll find out that Lot was uh, getting out of the, the place where God was bringing down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He escaped with his wife and his two daughters. They weren't supposed to look back. The, the mom looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. And he had two daughters. So he, he, mean, he means he gets to the place of safety, but the two girls realize there's not going to be any family line. And so they decide to go in and sleep with their dad. Uh, individually to make sure that the family line goes on. The, the, the location of that, the, the name of that place, the location of that, that sin was, was named Moab. It was not a, a name of, oh, this is a great place to go vacation, or this is a great place to go get what we need. This is, ooh, this is where that happened, Moab. Um, it's right on the highway. If you were coming from the desert in the south, you would go on up uh, through it. it. It shows up in a number of different fights with Israel. And again, a second typo. It's 2 Kings 3, not 1 Kings. Now, David, though, is looking at Moab at one point in his life and says, this is a safe place for my mom and dad to wait out the war that I'm having with Saul. So Moab at one point might be looked at by the Israelites as, oh, nobody wants to go to Moab. And then on David's point, oh, I'll hide mom and dad over there and maybe Saul won't find them. It's kind of gone back and forth. In Psalm 60, though, Moab is referred to as an enemy of God. You would not, as a good Jewish boy who understands the counsel of God, who's got his hands on what God wants him to do, would, would, would take a shortcut and, no, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to Moab. You just wouldn't do it. Moab is not the place you would go. In Deuteronomy 23, uh, there's a, a process there where the, the people of Moab were actually excluded from the assembly of God. You can't come back. You can't go in. You can't go to the temple. And yet, this is where he's gone. He's taken his wife and his two boys, and they've moved to Moab. You say, well, what's the big deal, Sherry? They just were trying to care for their family, find something to eat. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Back just a, a book or two. Deuteronomy 28. 28. And look at verse 15. 2815. Now, if you just glanced at your Bible, you're going to see some headers there. Verse 1, the header is blessings for obedience. You do what God says, He blesses. Then between verse 14 and 15, there's another header, and it says curses for disobedience. Again, this is not how we like it. We would like it all to be coming our way. But God's saying, hey, you do, you do life my way, blessings. You ignore me or run against me, no blessings. Tough to, tough to swallow. He says in verse 15, however, 
this is all after all the blessings part. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the county or country rather, your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed, no bread. The fruit of your womb will be cursed in the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send you on curses, confusion and rebuke and everything you put your hand to do until you're destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. Um, Drop down to verse 38. You will sow much seed in the field, but you'll harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the, wa the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. The famine that he and his family were suffering under in, Be in Bethlehem was a direct result it was part of the covenantal curses that God's promised Israel if they're failing to be faithful to him. Now again, that, that rubs us all wrong. We want love, God. We want, can't he overlook that? It was just a little oops. I'm sorry I liked him better than my current husband. It's not my fault. I, I mean, we're, we're like that as a people group. Because we have not been indoctrinated to the, and I mean that in a good way, into God's principles enough to know he does bless and he does curse. Now, Elimelech, when he looked at this famine, he, he's, he's looking at it as a, as a loving father would. My kids are starving to death. I got to go somewhere where they could get something to eat. But instead of looking at it through the lens of one of God's kids, God, we're a mess here. I got two kids that are hungry. I need to know what to do. We've served you and served you faithfully and we're going to continue to do so. But I need you. I need you to step into my family. Instead of doing that, he takes matters into his own hands and he flees the land. They should have stayed with God and God would have provided whatever was in his plan. Now, the Hebrew word for famine is interesting. It, it can be translated also hunger. So it's a little more than just a famine in the land. It's a hunger, a hunger that that might be in our lives for something other than just food. Do human beings hunger for things? Yeah, we hunger for attention and we get it improperly sometimes. We hunger for prestige or power or honor. And very often when we're hungering for those things, it's a pathway that's going to go wrong. It's a, it's a shortcut to solving what we think is a big problem, but it's a shortcut that's going to lead to disaster. Now, let me talk about this family a little bit, about the people. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Why did he just stay there? His name means it. His name means, regardless of what's going on, I've got him on the throne of my life. You all have had circumstances, a moment, when you were alone with God and it was a, a tragic situation and you wanted out of it. You either at that point lean into him or you run. And when you lean in, does it feel rosy and lovely? <laughs> Not always. Sometimes, yes, but sometimes it's just an act of obedience. 
My God is king and I'm staying put. No. He grabs the little lady and grabs the kids and hikes to Moab. Now, Malon's name, one of his sons, means sickly. How would you like to name your firstborn sickly? <laughs> you know, wait for it. Chilion, number two son's name, means frail. I'm not sure which is worse, sickly or frail. Now, Naomi's name means pleasant, and we'll get back to that in another lesson. So they've moved, like I said before, the boys had to have been, you know, middle to, to late teens because the, the Bible's going to pick up the story that they've been there 10 years and, and they're married at that point. Uh, Elimelech and both of his sons, well, let me back up about the marriage. Um, I want to make sure that you understand that intermarriage was specifically outlawed. So the boys are going to marry Moab women. They're not marrying Jewish girls. The one is named Orpha, from which I guess uh, Oprah was supposed to be named, but they spelled it wrong. I don't know. Anyway, Orpha, which means fawn or little doe, and the other is Ruth, which means friend. We'll get into Ruth's name later. These two girls, are Orpha and Ruth, marry Malon and Chilion. They're not supposed to be married. One more time in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. You say, well, Sherry, why don't you show us all these Old Testament things? I'm a, I'm a New Testament girl. I'm not interested in the law. Really? The law doesn't go away just because we're in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. You remember when Jesus was remarking about uh, the uh, Pharisees being such, uh, thinking that they're such swell guys because they, they tithe mint and anise, little spices. So they take a handful of spice and they'd cross off 10% and, and they'd put it back for the temple and take the 90% and it would run around bragging about, you see, I, I tithe this little, you know, it's like pouring salt in your hand and then pushing it back. And, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm tithing this part. I'm only keeping this. And Jesus looked at them and said, yeah, that's a good thing that you're doing that. Uh, you ought to. But you also, and he went on, went on to talk about the law of love in the New Testament. He didn't say, oh, you don't have to do that anymore. He said, oh, yeah, good, 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 good. Yeah, you ought to do that. And then went on to the law of love. So lest you think you get out of some of these instructions, you do not. Deuteronomy 7, look at verses 3 and 4. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So the point about intermarriage was not that he was um, a racial purist or thought one race was better than the other. He just realized if, if the Israelites married the Moabites, they're, they're going to intertwine their, their belief systems, their understanding of, of life. And pretty soon the great uh, relationship that he has with Israel built off of his law and built off of his commandments and his blessings will be, you know, dashed in the intermarriage with the, with the other girl. So when these boys take Orpha and, and Ruth as wives, they've, they've broken a major Levitical law. It is a big deal. And not too long, both Elimelech and the two boys die. You say, well, whoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. God ain't kidding. He has expectations for his kids. Now, I don't think God goes around zapping people. I'm not giving you that message. <laughs> but I am telling you he's serious about keeping his laws. 
And in this particular case, what happens is, as Naomi is the last remaining remnant of the family, the Hebrew word for she was left uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, and in verse 5, that word can be translated remnant. And the remnant becomes an important concept in another part of this book. There's a, there's a tough situation here. He's taken matters into his own hands. He's, he's got something going that he thinks is going to solve the problem. And he's forgotten his relationship with Yahweh. Sound like anybody you know? Oh, come on. I am not the only one. You've never taken matters into your own hands. You've seen the situation. And you go, well, okay, God hasn't come through, so we better. Yeah. Hmm. At, at, at every end of my lessons, I will have a, a so what section. And the, and the so what is to say, okay, this is what happened to Elimelech. This is what happened to Malon and Chilion. You know, how does that apply to me? When we take advantage of what I'll call personal shortcuts, the, the pressure builds in our lives. We're looking for a way out. We're, we, want to, we want to get around the circumstance. We don't want to be in the middle of it. We don't, we don't want to lean into it. We want to run from it. Get me out of this mess. And the, the problem in this first problem in the book of Ruth is that Elimelech and his wife did not cling to their relationship to Yahweh. They did not heed the instructions in his word. They're very clear. Go read the book of Deuteronomy this afternoon and you will get a sense of the law upon law upon law upon law upon law that he laid out for his people. And if they would have kept it, they would have been healthier, smarter, better, more, more, more uh, useful to him. But when they chose to do things their own way, they had to suffer the consequences. Not because God was being a meanie, but because God was trying to get their attention. Will you not return? The word remnant suggests return. And there is a return in this story. Taking matters into our own hands yields consequences. I want to give you two quick stories to, to, to nail this home. The first one happens in Genesis 16. You remember the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah and they, and they can't conceive. Mm -hmm. No babies. Mm -hmm. Now God has come down and said, hey, Abraham, you and Sarah, you're not only going to have a baby, you're going to have so many children and the uh, following children and the following children and the following children that they're going to be like, you can't number them like the stars. But they can't get pregnant. A little hard to have a, a family line of billions when you, when you can't get pregnant. What happens? Sarah says, hmm, honey, I got an idea. I, I got a servant girl here. Her name is Hagar. Just take her. If you take her, sleep with her, she has a baby. We'll take the baby as our own. Everybody's happy. Now we have that lineage that God ta talked about. You and I have a baby. Hera, uh, Hagar will be taken, well, well taken care of, home free. You know the story? Would you say they were home free? Uh, no. Tragic circumstances, right? They have the baby. Hera, uh, Hagar and Sarah duke it out on several occasions. And in the end, Ishmael is born. And Ishmael and Isaac are, are, are the contrasting uh, leaders of people groups that to, to tell today, you could read the uh, news for this morning, 
that Israel is duking it out in the West Bank or in Gaza Strip or somewhere between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. They've been at it since then. But, but Sarah thought she had a good idea. This will work. We can, we can get around this thing here. Rather than waiting and letting God do his thing. A second example, this one I want you to look at in the scriptures. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel, just after Ruth. 1 Samuel 24. So after we get through the period of the judges, then we get into the period of what we call the, the monarchy, and, and Saul becomes king, and then after Saul becomes David. Saul chases David around for a number of years. And uh, in the end, uh, David definitely becomes king, and he's pretty excited about it. And in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 21, the same story comes out. But here's the thing. Uh, I want you to look down at... Uh, conscious stricken. Wait a minute. I'm in the wrong spot. Don't tell me I have another... Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to go to First Chronicles. I think that's the one I want. Don't you love it when your Bible teacher loses her place? First Chronicles uh, 21. Yep, First Chronicles 21. Up, oh, blew it. First Chronicles 21. So in verse number one of chapter 21, the Bible says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. You say, well, why would Satan care two hoots about how big the army is under David? Here's the thing. If, if David had a small army, he would be more inclined to trust in God. Because I don't have that many resources. I don't have any of the horses. I don't have any of that men. I don't have, I don't have the, what it takes. I've got to defend myself not only against Saul, but against the nations around me. So I want a big army. I've got to have a big army, a very large army, a lot of people in my army. And so Satan rises up against Israel and incites David to count them. You say, well, what's the big deal? He just counted them. He just sent men out and said, and came up with a number. So when he came up with a number, let me ask you a question. What, and it was a large number, by the way, a big number. What do, you, what do you think David was thinking about when he heard that large number? I'm good to go. All right. Got, got all the resources we need here. I got X number of these and X number of those and <clears throat> X number of these other guy and kind of soldiers. I'm in good shape. Why did Satan incite him to do it? Because it would allow him to disobey God. God had told him in another place, you are not to count your army. You're to trust in me. And instead of trusting in him, he counted his army. And what happened? Some terrible things. A lot of people were killed. God got his point. Taking matters into our own hands is not good. When you have a clear indication from God that yours is supposed to do this, you say, oh, you know what? A house on the end of our street has come up, and it's a better house than the one we have now. We could probably swing it. Dad would have to get a third job, and I'd have to do something at night, but it would be good because then the kids would have that extra bedroom to play in. And, and you have a clear sense where God has said, no, your house is perfectly fine. And yet you go, but no, it's just the big, oh, that would. Uh, 
No. And a thousand other applications that we could come up with. When David went to count his men, he was, he was exercising his right to take his, to, to, to apply to himself the influence of, of everything that he had resources for, to make himself feel more, more strong, more, more whatever, and, and not have to pay attention to God. And God, on the other hand, says, no, 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 we're not, we're not counting. I'll use whatever's there. You say, well, if Amalek had not left, maybe his kids would have starved to death. Mm, doubt it. Doubt it. The other nations around had famine. We don't hear mass stories about all of them dying off. God had a plan for that family. Elimelech took matters into his own hands. He and the boys died off as a consequence to that. When you take matters into your own hands, that's the same thing that's going to happen. On the other hand, obedience to God's word yields different kinds of consequences. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. The psalm is all about the Word of God, the entire psalm. And if you've noticed, when you look at it, uh, every paragraph or so has a Hebrew letter, and that's how they arranged this so you could remember it. Uh, it's the alphabet. It's Hebrew alphabet. So just above verse 1, it says Aleph. And just above verse 9, it says Baith. And just above verse 17, it says Gimel. You see that? That's just the alphabet so the, 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 the children of Israel could memorize that psalm uh, completely. But I want you to look at some of the consequences when you do obey God's word, when you don't take things into your own hands. Look at verse number 8. Verse number 8 says, I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. So when I obey, he's not going to forsake me. If I don't, he is. Look at verse 11. I have hidden your heart, your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Look at verse uh, 24. Your statues are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 32. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Um, verse 44, and I just was thumbing through these. I will always obey your law forever and ever. And then verse 54, um, your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. They're the theme of my song. I hum your word. I'm not out taking shortcuts doing things that I know that are not what God's want. I want the consequences. I want, I want to be the kind of person that obeys God and in the end has the, the blessings, not, not the cursings from, from a, a righteous uh, God. You say, well, I, I don't know. It's just so hard. The Bible, trying to figure it out. I mean, there's so many things. A, a gal called me not two, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about something. And she said, well, you haven't really answered my question. I said, no, I haven't. I have that in my mystery box. And she said, what? I said, yeah, I have a mystery box. And I said, certain things about God's word that are just in the mystery box. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't make it work. I know it's there. I know I'm being held accountable for it. I, I, can't, I can't spell it out for you. Put it in the mystery box. See, here's the thing. We stop there. Well, if you can't explain how the dinosaurs wandered the earth, I'm not buying Jesus. <laughs> Listen to this, this little uh, ditty. 
uh, it was by Peter Marshall. He used to be the chaplain of the, of the U.S. Senate. He says, I wonder what would happen if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels, just one, pick one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So in your mind, pick one. You got one? Mm, okay, I got mine. If we agreed to read one of the Gospels until we came to a place that told us to do something. So you're reading along through chapter one of which one? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then when we hit that thing where it said, you know, something to do, we went out and do it. And only after we've done it, then we start reading again. The issue is not what we don't understand. The issue is what we do understand and don't want to do. And that's the problem that happened to Elimelech and his two boys. Yes, there are things in God's word that are puzzling and difficult and consequences and oh, holding them to it and killing off people and doing the... All David did was count his men. Why is he so mad at him? Because God has standards and he wants us to obey. It is better to obey than to sacrifice, he told Samuel. Let's pray. Father... Wow, it seems a little, a little harsh that a dad who just wanted his kids not to be hungry is held such, so accountable. But you have standards. You have, you have rulings in your word of the way we're supposed to live. And when we kick those things to the curb and choose a shortcut, we shouldn't be surprised when there is a consequence that's not pleasant. We need to live in the, in the shadow of obedience to your word. Teach us to do that this week. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you. Now, before.